This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pastor Mike, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by The Witness, a Black Christian collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram. Please don't forget about the gram, at Burns Clan. Please follow at your own risk. And joining me, as always, is the founder of The Witness. He has a very extensive bio, the man, the myth, the legend, the two-time best-selling author, the book award winner, Mr. Blue Check Verified himself. You can follow him at jamartisby.substack.com. Dr. Jamar Tisby is in the house with me. What's going on, brother? Did I get it right this time? Oh, man, you got everything in there. I'm impressed. That Thank you. That was Look, great. Man, I got I got some stuff up my sleeve for next time, though. I got some stuff Uh-oh. up my sleeve for next Uh-oh. time. Next time we do a live show, watch what happens. Let me just let me just caveat here. I, I need to give our listeners a public service announcement. If you talk to Tyler, make sure you're all caught up on Black Twitter on TikTok trends, on everything, because Tyler is the hall monitor for coolness. He's the cool police. And if you say (laughs) anything that is not 100% contemporary and cutting edge and blackity black, he's going to call you out on it. Or maybe it's just me, but that's a public service announcement. No, bro. I just feel like we're in an (laughs) iPhone 14 world. And if you use an iPhone 5 language, (laughs) I feel like it's just something we just need to regulate where we at in the world. But do it still make calls, though? Do it still make calls? But see, Paul said, I need to become (laughs) all things to all people. So I might save some and your iPhone 5 ain't saving nobody. Anyway, so we have a special guest. We're cutting up because we have a special guest on the line with us. Jamar, remind people about this, the, the Witness Foundation and your vision behind it, because we're about to introduce one of our Witness Fellows to our PTM audience. So I really want people to get the timeline of your heart and how this came to be. That's good, man. You, you know how we are always as black people on the struggle bus when it comes to financial resources, Listen. whatever it is we want to do, we want to make a movie, we want to uh, start a business, we want to run a nonprofit like The Witness, or we want to do a conference like we did in 2019, the Joy and Justice Conference. Man, that was one of the heaviest lifts I've ever done on a project or an event not because of the personnel, not because of the themes or the topics, but because of the money aspect, the fundraising aspect. It was so hard. And I just said, you know what? I don't want any other Black Christian to go through this for just wanting to do good work and fulfill their call. So that's where we came up with the idea of the Witness Foundation. And the signature program of the Witness Foundation is a two-year fellowship. We were so blessed in 2021 to inaugurate our first cohort of witness fellows who, in addition to mentoring, who, in addition to uh, training, who, in addition to uh, developing a rapport with one another and uh, a cohort of peers, they get $50,000 a piece 
for each of two years. So that's a total of a $100,000 investment. A hundred thousand. A hundred thousand. Drop a hundred K on them. That's how much we believe in black Christian leadership and developing those leaders. So we had an incredible slate of applicants and it was very, very hard to narrow it down to the five. Uh, But that's what we did. And that's what we got. One of the brothers in the process that I was intrigued by and blessed by his application, his heart, his desire um, to see change in his community and his story was a man by the name of Stanley Frankert. And Stanley Frankert was selected as one of the Witness Foundation fellows. And he is joining us today on Pass the Mic. Stanley, my brother, my brother. I, I feel like you, you got to be ordained, right? You got to be the right reverend or bishop or something. <laughs> I, some I feel like, Stanley, what, what is, <laughs> how should I properly refer to you? Because I feel like I just need to call you minister right now, just off rip. Hey, man, hey, man. You know, brother, you could just call me the trench worker, man. I like to put the boots on and get in the trenches, man. You know, I'm a firm believer. Ministry is you see a need, you meet a need. Outside of that, yes. man, you know, I don't try to do too much glitz and glam, but you know what I'm saying? <laughs> this is why we like Stanley. Exactly. This is why Stanley about to take y'all exactly. to church. Exactly. I need y'all to get hydrated. I need you to pull out your tea. <laughs> I need you to sit down. I need you to really take this in. Don't be washing dishes. Don't be cooking. Don't be cutting up vegetables because Just Stanley is about notebook. to take us to church. Stanley, how are you doing today, man? <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us on Pastor Mike. Hey, man, it's a blessing to be here, man. I'm doing well. I am, you know, travailing in the Lord. I feel great. I feel like the joy of the Lord is my strength on today. And I'm excited to be here in some great company. You know, I think it's important for people to understand and know that we really are just so honored and encouraged to be connected to people like you and to be connected to you all as witness fellows. And over here at the BCC side, you know, it's it's the witness as a whole is two arms. It's the witness BCC, which most people, if you're tuning into Pastor Mike, you're familiar with. And then the Witness Foundation, which we've talked at length about. But I just want to say it's an honor to be connected to you, Stanley, and to see God work in your life. But most people don't know your story. So can you share just briefly where you have come from and what you have been through and how God has brought you to this point? Yeah, absolutely, man. Just know that the uh, the privilege is mutual, man. It's an honor. It's a blessing to be connected to greatness uh, with you and Dr. Jamar Tisby do on Pastor Mike. I literally am sharing your podcast at least five times a week, and um, it's been blessing so many wow. lives. So thank you for all man, that. Man, that's encouraging, brother. Uh, we appreciate, appreciate you, man. that. Uh, thank yes, you, man. everybody follow Stanley's example. <laughs> <laughs> 100, 100. But yeah, man. So yeah, kind of, you know, a little bit about who I am and where I come from. I grew up um, in the typical urban context, you know, single parent household, a mother who was trying to raise a young boy into a man. um, And she did everything she could in her power um, to make sure we had. And so that left a big void in my life as far as uh, parental figures and parental guidance. Um, So, you know, at age 10, if I'm being really honest, um, you know, through a myriad of circumstances, my father wasn't a big pivotal picture in my life. Um, so I tried to find daddy in a street corner. Um, and of course, man, you know, the street corners are full of black men who've been led astray generation after generation after generation. And so I found my dad and a man named B-Dog who had a money green Cadillac, 26 inch rims. And I mean, mm. the Sean John Valor suits was popping then, right? Right. And right. so um, he had on this baby blue Sean John Valor suit. 
and just looked like money, smelled like money, talked like money, and all the girls flocking to him. And I was like, yo, that's who I'm going to be when I grow up. And so, man, that identity crisis of that birthed out of my mother telling me at the age of 10 that um, you're the man of the house. And so my idea of a man was a breadwinner. Um, and so I pursued that at an early age. And so that led me down a path uh, of selling drugs, gangbanging, um, being gang affiliated and really, really trying to embody what I thought was love, but a corrupt form of it. And so um, that led me down a path, man, where at that age of 16, um, over $17,000, um, nine ounces of heroin, I shot somebody in the face, man. Um, and, you know, wow. by God's mercy and by God's grace, like that, that, that what was supposed to be a 25 to life year sentence um, ended up becoming a 10 year sentence. And it was the 10 years that changed the trajectory of my life. And so while in prison, I was still doing the same things I was doing on the streets. Um, I got locked up at 16. I came home at 26, but at 21 years old, in the midst of prison, in the midst of a gang fight, I encountered Christ and radically changed my life. Like literally realized my need for him. Um, I didn't grow up in church. I didn't necessarily ever see a Bible prior to like juvenile detention homes and uh, jails and, and, and prison. Um, but I remember in that moment, laying on the ground, realizing how powerless I was as I was getting jumped by 10 men. And jumped means, you know, I was getting stomped, kicked, punched, stabbed, mm -hmm. all of that. Got hit with a lock in a sock. I'm missing a tooth over that. Um, but, you know, in that, um, I realized how powerless I was. And that's when I reached out and said, God, Jesus, whoever you are, if you're real, get me off this ground. And literally five minutes later, I was walking out of there um, and there were some divine acts that took place then. Um, but, you know, through that time in prison, I began to get discipled by three men um, who I would be amiss if I didn't mention them. Um, Bobby Johnson, Alfred Cleveland and Savalas Crosby, all of them. Um, considered lifers in the Ohio Department of Rehabilitations and Corrections, uh, one of whom, by God's goodness, is home now, uh, two who are on their way home. Um, and wow. so in the midst of that, man, we started a uh, nonprofit organization um, while we were in prison. We just began running programs. And the idea behind the program was to reach gang members with the most authentic form of love, the love of Jesus Christ. And so um, one of the biggest prison gangs here in the state of Ohio is the Heartless Felons. Um, and man, I had a heart for him because I realized they were looking for love in all the wrong places and all the wrong faces. Um, and so, man, we just wanted to create an environment that was conducive for them, um, that would empower them and that would allow them to encounter the love of Jesus. So, yeah, in 2015, man, we had 75 men uh, who were considered gang affiliated. They call them security threat groups in the prison. Um, and these 75 men, man, went through a rigorous 12 week discipleship program. Um, where they committed to abstaining from things like pornography. They admitted they 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 um, committed to abstaining from um, you know partaking in alcohol and drugs. They they committed to abstaining from tobacco use, um, and we held them accountable to that. Man. And we seen lives transformed from that, and literally people coming home and staying home simply because they committed to um, these twelve weeks of discipleship, and still to this day connected with them fellas. Um, some of them, you know, they went on to be entrepreneurs, successful in what they do, husbands, fathers, you know, things like that. And to God be the glory for that. So, yeah, when I came home March 10th of 2017, 
you know, I came home to a city I was unfamiliar with because while I was incarcerated, I had lost my only support system, my mother. Um, she passed away from cancer in 2016. Um, but I came home, man, and, you know, it was the opportunity to have a new start. It was the opportunity to have a fresh beginning to rewrite the narrative of what my life had been. Um, and so, man, I went to a halfway house for nine months. Um, while in that halfway house, the next day, I got out on a Friday. That Saturday, I was in a men's group at a local church, getting connected, getting plugged in, and building that community of support. Um, and when I came home, man, those men that discipled me, they have been an integral part of my life since I've been home for five and a half years. Every single week, we still doing discipleship calls over the phone. I'm still going into prisons and, man, sitting down under their leadership. Uh, and they're mighty men of God who can constantly pour into me. And so, yeah, here we are today. Um, we get the privilege of being a nonprofit organization here um, that works with men and women, both incarcerated and navigate reentry on their way home. Uh, we work with their families and their loved ones, helping them walk through that process with that loved one. Um, and man, it's been a blessing to see God move. Uh, we've been we've been kicking off our reentry Wednesdays every single Wednesday from four to five. Um, we have family members. We have people who are navigating reentry, local community support, and it's all peer led. Everything we do is led from a place of people who have lived experience to utilize that lived experience to the glory of God and to advance his kingdom. And bro, it's been lit, 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 like turning up and, and so much, so much has happened, man. Serving over 800 men and women who've been incarcerated in the justice system, um, continuing to expand that reach and impact and influence lives through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is wow. astounding. Stanley, wow. like, I mean, we got a little taste of this in the application process, but to hear more from you in detail is is truly a gift, brother. I want to go back a little bit to when you became a Christian. And yeah. I am just so curious about how does one present Jesus in such a way that it appeals to or makes sense to someone who's literally in some of the hardest circumstances our society presents, which is being in prison. Like, <laughs> just to put it crassly, how 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 does Jesus not seem like a punk to you in that situation? <laughs> like, <laughs> like just real talk. I mean, what was it? How yeah, did how man. did people talk about Jesus that said, "Man, I need to I need to give this a try." Man, so like, I think for real, the best way to articulate it is is that like I was on a journey and I was searching. If I'm being honest, so like. I was dibbling and dabbling in what we know as modern day Gnosticism. They call it five percenter in the prison, basically God body ideology. I dibbled and dabbled in Buddhism. I dibbled and dabbled with, you know, the nation of Islam. Um, and I was really on a journey trying to find out, like, what is life all about? Um, at 21 years old, you know, looking at letters on a piece of paper as my sentence, it, I realized there had to be more to life than what I was used to. Um, and so that journey led to me really searching for truth. And man, when I seen the brothers that identified as, you know, disciples of Jesus, man, them brothers was authentic, man. Them brothers was, they were sincerely living for God in a way where like, they had no ulterior motives. Like these brothers have life on paper. They had been in prison for 20 plus years, most of them. And like, there was no, benefit from following Jesus other than the fact that they must have believed it was true. And so, man, when I seen that, it was like, yo, I got to at least explore this. Like, 
Because these brothers, man, they committed, they devoted, they live in lines of integrity in a place where it's hard to like, you, I mean, the stuff you see on a day-to-day basis would create so much trauma in a person's life. Like if you don't have Jesus, you gotta be halfway crazy for real. And so, man, when I seen these brothers, man, really, really, truly living lives, um, pouring out their lives and other men, making sure that they didn't come back all for the simple fact that they wanted to bring glory to God, it became real to me. And I remember, man, when I got off that ground, it was like as clear as day, as clear as you're talking to me. I remember I was washing the blood off of me. I was in the shower trying to get the blood off me because if they catch blood on you, you go into the hole. So I'm in the shower and I'm washing off this blood. And I remember like this, this voice as clear as day. And I would say it's that still small voice. Right. Um, but it was as clear as day. And I remember it saying like, just like you was all in the streets, be all in for me. And like, that was the catalyst. Mm. Um, You know what I mean? Like that was the catalyst that, you know, literally was a Saul to Paul conversion. So yeah, I think it was the combination of three things. I think it was, seeing men truly authentically living to the glory of God. Number two, they were doing it even though they didn't have any reason to benefit from it. And number three, I think that encounter, man, was just such an intimate encounter when I heard that still small voice that like, I couldn't help but to be obedient to the call. Hey everybody, this is Tyler. This is Dr. Jamar Tisby. And we are excited that you're listening to this episode of Pastor Mike, but let me encourage you to support us. You can do so by going to patreon.com forward slash Pastor Mike. And for just $1 an episode, just a dollar? now that's the bare minimum, that's four quarters. But if you want to go higher, okay, 5, go 10, higher. 15, right. 20, 25, whatever it is, that will keep this show going and keep the high quality that hopefully you enjoy. So thank you for listening, but you can take it to the next level. Patreon.com slash Pass the mic. We appreciate you. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu slash admit. Yeah, this is this is uh, striking, I think, mainly because, you know, it's it's the thing that we in the church so often grow cold to, which is the transformative power of the spirit of God. And I think we really get cold to the fact that miracle deliverance and transformation and salvation still happens. You know, it still happens. It still works. It still is something that is a reality for many people. And just because we don't see it or just because we wrapped ourselves up in a Christian or evangelical bubble, doesn't mean that it's not happening and it can't happen in our presence and in our midst. When you kind of had this transition, you started to be discipled by these three men. Was it automatic that you said, I have to give something back? Like, I have to do something. I have to serve. How, how immediate did your life shift 
in that particular environment because, again, like you're separated from a lot of the things that we would see as distractions or things that happen. And so it seems as though you would have the time to like really deepen your faith and build that foundation. So was it immediate that you said we have to do something to help others or, or did that take time to build? Yeah, that definitely took time to be exact about a year and a half, man. I sat under that tutelage because like, you know, I, I mean, to just be really candid, like, I didn't know nothing about this thing called Christianity. I didn't know nothing about like Jesus other than the fact of like, you know, in Islam, they call him a prophet. You know what I mean? Um, In five percenterism, they have you study, study the scriptures. But like, I didn't know how to really rightly divide the word of truth. And so, man, I sat under the tutelage of these three men, you know, Babo, Cleve and Savalas for three, for a year and a half. And like, after that, you know, it was, it was like they started empowering me through acts of service. And it started off like little, you know what I mean? Like if I'm being honest, it started off with me writing on a whiteboard. Then, you know, they invited me to help lead some um, ministry opportunities through the uh, Fellowship of Christian Athletes in there. Um, And I will say that like, yeah, prison is definitely isolated in the sense of like worldly distractions. So you don't got a whole bunch of social media in there. Um, You ain't really like, you ain't got massive amounts of women, you know, just being provocative in there, um, you know, all of those things. But like, there's still distractions in there. Like I still, when I was, when I got saved, I had a cell phone in prison. I was selling tobacco in prison. I was gangbanging in prison. And so like those things are distractions. I was drinking hooch and smoking weed in prison. Um, and so like, you know, and I was, you know, having intimate relationships with female COs in prison. So like those distractions still can happen. Um, hmm. but I think once you have, once you have that, like that transformative process, and especially for me, it was literally deliverance, like literally those desires for those things were plucked out of me. And so like, I, I can't explain it no other way, but I just knew like I flushed a pound and a half of tobacco down the toilet. People wanted to beat me up about it. You know what I'm saying? I threw a cell phone. And that's a, a lot. That's a lot. A pound and a half. That's a lot. Doc. <laughs> you know and in prison you know that was about five thousand dollars worth of money and so like that was like you know yeah you know what i'm saying so like that was like something like you get beat up over um i had a cell phone in there and i threw it in a sewer out in the yard and like i remember people like man you crazy man what is wrong with you and and then man literally day number three um i walked up to you know a gang that i was a part of and i told the brothers i said listen man i know there's rules to this i know there's levels to this but i said man like, whatever you feel we need to do, let's go ahead and handle it as men, because I'm done. And, you know, I remember them brothers looking at me and laughing. And, you know, I had to, you know, I felt like for the first time in my life, there was like a demonic opposition against the thing that I was doing. Mm. And I remember, you know, just the grace of God covering me and giving me the boldness to say, no, I'm dead serious. Like, I don't know what this journey is going to hold, but I know I can't do this no more. And I remember them brothers laughing again and walking away and saying, man, you'll be back. Um, and then, man, 18 months, man, went by. And them brothers, you know, cracking jokes on me as I'm carrying my Bible in the yard. You know, I gave away all the stuff I had accumulated from selling drugs in prison. And I had on high waters and shiny black shoes, man. I, I cannot make this Whoa. stuff up, man. I had a pair of shiny new balances. Oh, <laughs> like. You know, that was a huge downgrade from the Air Force One that I was rocking, man, probably three days ago. And um, I remember these brothers, man, uh, man, just cracking jokes on me, 
you know, some of the brothers that I have been in fights with that I beat up, you know, looking at me and like trying me. And I remember, man, you know, feeling so frustrated and wanting to go back to what I knew. But I knew like in that moment, if nothing changed, nothing changed. Man. Mm. Yeah. And so, yeah, I just kept marching. Wow. Does I appreciate I, I, I don't take for granted you telling your story because Tyler and Seriously. I we both had to tell our stories, which aren't even nearly as traumatic as what you went through. I'm just wondering from your perspective, especially for those who are who are interested in, um, you know, improving conditions for people who are incarcerated in a prison. How do we engage these stories without it turning into some type of voyeuristic? Oh, wow. I can't believe you went through that. Right, like, how do we right. engage these stories respectfully in the sense that we need to know this knowledge, but not making it a spectacle you know how do we respect you and your story and how would you want people to engage you about your story um if you're willing to share yeah no for sure man i think it's as simple as what we do in church world that's called discipleship right just build relationships um just be willing to look at me as a person who you know is coming with my own experience it's like you dr jamar you know coming with your own experience you pastor tyler coming with your own experience and have conversations, break bread, fellowship. Um, you know, there's plenty of platforms and avenues to where, you know, um, you know, through our young Christian professionals ministry, we um we do, you know, relationship courses where literally, man, we invite guest speakers to come in to share from the scriptures. Uh we do date nights for, you know, men who are incarcerated and their loved ones. Um, we do uh spiritual counseling for them. Um, to help them, like, just feel that natural affection, to really, truly find out ways to, like, build that relationship, even though they're incarcerated. Because, like, at the end of the day, like, 98% of the people that are incarcerated are coming home. And so, like, that journey, it, it begins while incarcerated. As a matter of fact, I would even venture to say it begins the day you're arrested. You know what I'm saying? And so, like, being able to engage in these stories and, and be a part of those conversations. I think it just starts with as simple as like saying, Hey, I want to build a relationship. You know what I mean? Whether that's a relationship over phone calls, whether that's a relationship and in inviting people to the dinner table at your crib. Um, you know, that's something that I'm a firm believer in, you know, like you're only going to be as diverse as your dinner table. And so like, if you ain't living a mm. life of diversity in that way, you know what I'm saying? Like, like these conversations, they, they get made spectacles of, they get kind of like um, exalted. They get kind of like, you know, that that notoriety. And so, like, these are conversations I have every day with people who've navigated that, you know, incarcerated experience and are navigating reentry and trying to take that journey home. And, like, we celebrate the little wins. We love on them. We tell them we're proud of them. But, man, we walk with them. And, and man, those, those stories become, like, stories of redemption, stories of hope, stories of inspiration that should be shared with the world in a way that like says like, yo, look, like, yeah, I went through that, but I'm a different person now. I've been transformed. I've been redeemed. I've been restored in the hands of, of almighty God. And and so like, I think it just needs to be in that relationship. You know, you talked about your first cohort being in 2015 and we could probably swap stories about leading organizations and <laughs> running running things that, you know, programs for people and navigating that. What were some of the challenges that you faced getting this off the ground and trying to establish 
you know, healthy relationships and connection and avenues and all these things that you desire to do, what were some of the obstacles that you were running into and have run into in this work? Yeah. Oh, man. I, I mean, do we got enough time? I feel like I could talk about <laughs> four or five days on this, but... <laughs> right, right, right. No, no. If I had to be real honest, I think... No, I think, you know, while even while I was incarcerated, um, I was really, you know, pursuing education. I've always been uh, gifted in that way, where, you know, I was a straight-A student when I was in school, um, and, you know, able to 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 find some sense of fulfillment in education. And so um, even while in prison, educating myself, I studied nonprofits. I went to college in prison. I went to seminary school in prison. Um, I think the lack of education was one of those barriers. So like, unbeknownst to me, you know, we created our organization. We made articles of incorporation and bylaws while we were incarcerated. And we made them in a way where it was like conducive for the institution that we was in. But what it did when we came home is it tied us to a specific type of nonprofit, which I, was, I wasn't aware of. And so when I came home and I was trying to navigate being solidified in the state of Ohio through the Secretary of State as a registered nonprofit, we had to register as a different kind of nonprofit. And like that was frustrating because like simply based off of some language and a document, we couldn't become a 501c3 tax exempt nonprofit. Um, by God's mm. grace, we, we've navigated that. And now we're here as a 501c3 tax exempt charitable organization. But um, that journey in and of itself was a process. I remember, you know, another barrier is the education of writing grants. So I've paid like if I had to be honest, like I probably paid tens of thousands of dollars trying to learn how to write grants. And, you know, that the only thing that they taught me is how to find grants, which you can type in grants.gov on the website. And you can find all the grants you need. Wow. And I'm like, why do I pay for this? Yes. (laughs) And so, um, you know, that's been a barrier. I think some of the relationship building, like because of my previous life and where I've come from, I feel like um, that created, you know, some challenges in and of itself. So it's hard for somebody who's been in a life like that to really find relationships they can trust. And so, like, you know, that post-traumatic stress disorder, right? That's a real life thing for people who are navigating re-entry. The minute that the relationship looks like something that we went through, I'll be honest, in my world, I have a tendency to shut down. But by God's goodness and his grace and his presence in me, man, I've had to press through that for the sake of saying like, God, if you can't use anybody here in my, send me, man. Like, and I'm willing to take up my cross and die daily to myself. And so, you know, I've been burned in some relationships. I remember, you know, having visions that I wrote down and made plain as the scriptures encouraged us to do and sharing them with people that I thought were trusted people. And I remember one in particular, man, we had a vision for a discipleship home. Um, And literally, man, an employer I worked for, the president of that organization, took those documents and word for word, line upon line, did the same thing and got like $2.3 million to do it. Sir. (laughs) and so like you know (laughs) you know what i'm saying and like it was heartbreaking you know i was i was i was bitter i was resentful um and that was a journey and and just seeking the lord and really allowing him to you know restore my heart because like you know then it was like a tax on my integrity and tax on my character um to push me out of the organization and you know like it was just really tough going through that experience so you know 
coming out of that, you know, I was at the place where I was like, you know what, I'm done with young Christian professionals. But that's when the Witness Fellowship came through. And you know what I mean? Wow. Like, it was the first time that breathed life back into the vision God gave me in prison. And like, the fact that somebody was willing to say like, look, like, we believe in your vision enough to not only just like give you the support you need as far as like mentoring and coaching and leadership training, but like to invest in your vision. Like it was like the breath out of fresh air that I needed in my soul to keep on running the race that was set before me. And so like, it was good news in the form of the witness fellowship. You know what I'm saying? Like it was good news um, that hit me when I applied for that. And it was a blessing. Um, I think of, you know, another scenario and, and, and I'll kind of, I was kind of, you know, pass the mic back, but like, I think of another scenario in specific where, um, man, you know, people were like, why do you work so many jobs? Why do you do so many things? I currently right now work three jobs, you know what I mean? Trying to fund this vision and trying to make sure that like, man, everybody on my team has what they need to be equipped to do the work. And I remember telling people like, you know, just to be honest, I work this way because don't nobody want to give me a chance. And people taking that as if I was complaining and ungrateful for the things that I have been blessed with, missing the whole content of the message. You asked me a question and I gave you an answer and it wasn't the answer that you wanted. And so like just going through those types of scenarios, man, I think have created um, a lot of hurdles, a lot of obstacles um, that I've had to really truly depend upon the Holy Spirit to guide me through uh, when it comes to this work. Man, I, well, first of all, I'm just so glad that the witness can be part of your journey because you're blessing us as yes. well. Yes, brother. Um, Such a blessing, man. That, that, woo, I put you know, Jeff Fuel in my pack, man. You know, ah. bro, um, brother Stanley, tell us more about YCP for folks who are not familiar. And, and in particular, I'm very intrigued by the angle you took. So coming out, you had a fire in your bones. You knew you had a calling from God to, to, to work for better industry in some type of form, you chose to focus on like professional skills and relational skills. Why, why that particular ministry did you think would be the most effective way for you to exercise your gifts and make an impact in this area? Yeah. So to be honest, it just came out of my own lived experience. So like growing up, I never learned how to tie a tie. Growing up, I never learned how to type a proper email. Um, growing up, I never had a real job. You know, I sold dope my whole life. And so when I came home at 26 years old, like I had to learn those things, you know, and I was learning those things while I was in prison. Like that was part of my assignment of going to prison was to learn how to be a man of God and a man of integrity. And so, man, for me, really, really understanding the needs of the urban culture, specifically the use of an urban culture, um, like it was like, Wow, like how many other young black men don't know how to tie a tie? How many other young black men have never worked a job in their life and come home from prison and they're telling us to make resumes, but all I got on my resume is my prison job? Wow. How do I use that to get into the door? You know what I'm saying? Somebody's hand and a how to do is that people up because that's all I ever did. And so like teaching young men how to shake people's hands was a platform to really show them the love of Christ, to let them know like no, you were you you were fearfully and wonderfully made. God knitted you together in your mother's womb. And here are some tips to the trade so that you can allow your gift to make room for you. And really fanning that gift into flame in people. So 
So like, for example, um, the professionalism avenue is really just a, a, a catalyst, if you will, to allow people to really lean into what is my calling? What is my gift? How do I use these things to make sure that like my gift makes room for me? Um, and so we do a lot of things, man. And young Christian professionals, we're spe- we specialize in um, going into the prisons, working with men and women while they're incarcerated. We take them through our, uh, we've revised it now to eight weeks just because we've seen that like sometimes 12 weeks is a lot to commit to. And in eight weeks, man, we've, we've, we, we go through character development, through the scriptures. We talk about things like what's your purpose? What does God use to make that purpose? We talk about how to turn fear into faith through the Holy Spirit. We talk about the importance of prayer and fasting. We talk about the importance of godly spouses um, and a myriad of other topics. And then, you know, we have our second class, which we call our executive etiquette and professional development, where we have them in a boardroom setting, we give them titles like chief executive, uh, operating officer, um, all of those types of titles. Um, and we have them operate in those functions. So for the CEO, that person is leading the meeting. He's the one facilitating or she's the one. The COO, they're the ones who, you know, are making sure the guest is there, making sure that pamphlets are handed out. For the secretary, they're the ones who collect the homework. They're the ones who sign people in and just giving them these job titles in a boardroom setting and helping them walk through those things. Um, and then we do a, a third thing um, that, that I think has just been such a blessing um, for people both coming home and those who are incarcerated. We use people who have navigated the journey of reentry to be mentors for those who are navigating that journey. We call it here in um, you know the service provider world, we call it peer support. And essentially, it's people with lived experience reaching back and helping those with the same experience. And so, man, we found so much power in that. Um, our Wednesday meetings are peer driven. Everybody on our team is somebody who's either navigated incarceration or has been justice involved at some point. So, yeah, because we, we understood it to be a need for the context that we were called to. And, man, it's just been tremendously um overwhelming I, I had to use one word to see how god has shown up through that and to see how he's positioned people in places that like only his favor could get them to you know i think one of the things that we struggle with as you know those who lead organizations like the witness and you know jamar and i've often talked about how much leading the day-to-day aspects of the work has restricted our ability to imagine and dream how at a certain point things just become so um, overwhelming, even in a negative sense, that you feel as though you just have to keep getting stuff done and responding and and tweaking and maintaining and uh, correcting and all these other things behind the scenes that you just don't have the ability and capacity to dream. Um, yeah. What is your dream for this organization? Like, what is your dream, and what are you working towards, and what do you desire? You know, and I, and the reason I ask that is because you being coming from where you've come from and navigating what you've navigated, you know, I can't even imagine like what your what experiencing this even the fellowship means. So, what's next for you, and what do you feel like it's going to set you up to be able to do in the future? Man, so yeah, um, experiencing the witness, man, has, I mean, we've expanded our organization and our capacity, man. We've, we've actually expanded statewide. We were currently, uh, when we met the witness, we were in two prisons, man. 
And now, man, we're in we're in nine prisons in the state of Ohio, both men and women, um, and serving those men and women. Wow. Um, You know what I mean? And to God be the glory, I'm building a team of reentry. We call them disciple makers, but they're reentry mentors of people who are willing to walk this walk with people, make sure that they're being held accountable, work through goals with people as they're navigating reentry. And man, you know, it's been a blessing to see God show up in that way. The vision, if, if if I had to be honest, man, when we first started this. You know, a vision was big um, and it still is. And our hope is, is that like through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we want to bring redemptive restoration to the justice system. Like we truly believe like this is a systematic change happening at its finest and it's happening under the radar. Um, I think sometimes when we use those terms, specifically in settings where um, the justice people, you know, people that are involved in the justice system are involved, they sometimes like take it as a threat or opposition. But we want to see it as a compliment to the justice system. Like, we know how to incarcerate people really well here in America. We know how to do that. And, like, the statistics show that. But, like, we want to compliment it to say, like, yes, there is a season where people may need to sit down. And the root word of penitentiary, I think sometimes people forget this, the root word of penitentiary is penitence. And it's meant to be designed for a time to reflect upon life. So, like, that's a good thing. You know what I'm saying? Like, to reflect upon life and where I'm at and where I'm going. Like, that's okay. I think our system here in America has abused it. And, you know, the 13th Amendment is evidence of that. But, like, yes. I think, man, going forward, if we could complement, like, what we've seen in the justice system and say, you know what, like, the people who have navigated this experience are probably the ones best equipped and should be resourced and should be funded and should be empowered to use that lived experience to help people navigating that. Like, that's my hope. And that like people who come home, you know, the, the collateral sanction piece is a huge thing. Um, and so like collateral sanctions are where like people have done the time that they were, you know, sentenced to for their crime, but they come home and they're still paying for this crime. So for me, being a felon that shows up when I try to apply for jobs, that showed up when me and my wife tried to apply for a mortgage, that showed up when me and my wife sometimes are driving down the street and may get pulled over. Um, that shows up in so many facets, you know what I mean? Um, and every day our decisions are curtailed simply because of something that I thought I already paid the time for. I remember, you know, I'll share this a little bit. Uh, I remember me and my wife, when we first came, um, we got married and I was home and we were trying to find our apartment. We had to look at 36 apartments before somebody was willing to accept Ooh. Based on my felony. Goodness gracious. And you know what I mean? Like, like my prayer is, is that like young Christian professionals can create such a network, such a community, such a support that says like, yo, look, here's evidence of transformation. And here's evidence of why that shouldn't be, that shouldn't even be allowed in our nation Um, and prayerfully across the world. Um, You know, I think for me, the vision is, is like, if we could find ourselves in, every single state in the United States of America and in countries like Africa, Australia, UK, doing this restorative justice work. For me, that would be, that would be, that would be success. And to be honest, like, if I'm being real, I don't think the Lord going to let me stop until we get there. So like, I'm all in. Come on, dog. Come on, bro. Come on, bro. Like, energy, bro. Energy. (laughs) Energy, Stanley. Yes, so, <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Like I'm, I'm fully convinced. I'm fully persuaded that he's able. And like because of that, like even on the hard days, 
I'm going to keep on pressing. I'm going to keep on pushing. And that's why I started it off, like, saying the, the joy of the Lord is my strength, for real. Like, because of the lives I've seen impacted, the lives of that I've seen transformed, like, I have great joy. I take joy in other people succeeding in life. And so because of that, I'm going to keep on running the race that's set before me. And I'm not going to be boxing as one who beating at the air either. You feel me? So. <laughs> Come on, Doc. I love listening to you because you actually believe what you say you believe. I have just Come been on, Jay. struck. That's the truth, bro. That's the I've truth. I've been struck bro. so often by so many of us who claim the name of Christ and we do it from a position of like cultural uh, acquiescence, right? It's just, it's the thing to do or it seems like what is required to be quote unquote, a nice person. But when it comes down to the way we live, do we actually believe on the promises of God? And it's so inspirational and it's a witness. It's a witness to listen to somebody like you, Stanley, who's been in some of the worst of situations and in that encountered God. So, you know, he's real. You encountered him at the bottom. And so you understand yeah. that Jesus meets you where you are that he truly changes, that he truly transforms, and now you're living life accordingly, which is what I think the Bible means when it says, let your light shine, because your light is shining, brother, and it's guiding, and it's helping us, and it's helping show the way, and we just praise God for the work he's doing in you and that you're doing for others. Amen, man. I appreciate that word of encouragement, man. That's a blessing, man, for real. Stanley, man, we're gonna have to have you back soon. Like we're gonna have to bring you back and we're just gonna have to, to chop. And we're just so encouraged by you. And I echo everything that Jamar just said. And, and thank you. Thank you for representing uh not just yourself and the Christian Young Professionals, but but thank you so much for representing the witness so well. We appreciate yes, you. You are yes. you are a witness. You are a witness, Stanley. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that, man. And, hey, you just set it up, bro. I, hey, man, Lord willing, I'm, I'll be in the building, man. You just let me know when. I'm on call, Doc. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.